Welcome to the Companion Briefing Podcast. It's August 4th, and today we're going to discuss some of the biggest headlines in the world of sci-fi, including Doctor Who, Scarlett Johansson, Stargate Worlds, and The Suicide Squad. I'm your host, Tommy Terry Green, and I'm joined, as always, by our editor, James Hoare. Hi, James. Hi, Tommy. Don't be fooled by the takes I got. I'm still, I'm still Jimmy from the block. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this is probably a good time to apologise for the lack of briefing last week as well. Um, we were just snowed under, um, so there's a lot of catching up to do. So, the the Weekend Geek this week, um, confession, I haven't actually checked it out yet, so what, what have I got in store? Oof, well you've been a very, very busy boy. The main stories from the Weekend Geek this week in Geek... Um, there's some lovely photos from the, the Hawkeye show, which is coming in November on Disney+. Plus. Um, sort of uh, Hawkeye 2, really. Hayley Steinfeld just looks incredible as, as Kate. She tweeted out a shot of her in a purple costume, and I am convinced already that's going to be a ton of fun. Um Sweet Tooth, which according to our reader survey, nobody apart from me is watching, um, has got a second season on Netflix. Um, give it give it a chance, guys, or your antler to me. Um, that joke only works if you realise that he's a dear boy and seeing as none of you are watching it. <laughs> that was honestly just a waste of precious broadcasting seconds. That's um, dear boy with two E's, not yeah. an E-A. It's not yeah. just a dear boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't suddenly suddenly reinvented myself as an elderly man. What a 1960s uh, Time Lord, which is a good oh. segue to talking about, you know, last week we had the trailer for Doctor Who Series 13, and this week we've got the sad news, I think, in, in, in my eyes, that star Jodie Whittaker and showrunner Chris Chibnall have announced that Series 13 will be their last full series. They'll be bowing out following three two-part specials in 2022, which seems to me like what they actually mean is Series 14 is going to be six episodes. Um, and they've, they've tried to, to rebrand that. Um, sort of like How when... the episodes do they usually do? Because in England, we love a six-episode, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the beauty of the BBC for for the benefit of, of kind of Americans and listeners elsewhere in the world. In Britain, our television doesn't have to make money, so you can just do whatever you want for however long as you want, and uh, and it's fine um, unless unless it's perceived as being too left-wing, in which case, the government hates it. Um, so that's, that is essentially uh, half a century of public service broadcasting history in, I think, two sentences. But there you go. That's impressive. So, yeah, part of the problem for me, really, and, and why it's a bit depressing is that, well, this series, Series 13, was obviously um, shooting was interrupted by COVID. So we're only getting eight episodes. Um, previous series would have had 10 or 12 so okay. we're just having much less screen time for our kind of Chibnall and Whittaker who then I feel like we need to really luxuriate in those characters in that world 
Um, Unachidnal has a lot of critics. Uh, Jodie Whittaker has a lot of critics too, but for completely different reasons. The people that dislike Jodie Whittaker's doctor just generally, generally tend to hate women. Um, it's a shame. <laughs> it's the race. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, the, the other kind of hook for this series is it promises to be a single ongoing story which uh, historians are keen to remind us is the first since 1986's Trial of a Time Lord, in which Colin Baker rolled around a gravel pit. Now, I'm really cautious about the single ongoing story boast, because I think Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat would have both claimed that each series was a single ongoing story. But in the case of Moffat, an arc meant mentioning something in episode one, and then resolving it in episode 12 without acknowledging it at any points in between. So <laughs> I, I'm, you know, holding holding back my kind of enthusiasm for that. But, you know, the teaser trailer gives us robots, alien landscapes, and good news for Stargate fans, there's a 1920s Egyptology scene and John Bishop falling for a wormhole. So that's you lot catered for. <laughs> wow. So... Yeah, I'm just a shame to shame to lose Jodie Whittaker because uh, she's a Yorkshire lass and uh, she grew up in Skelmanthorpe, which was only two and a half miles from where I used to live. So, um, oh wow, that's my 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 one my one shot at fame. I don't know how how we... that gives me a shot at fame, to be honest. <laughs> Can we go back to the word historian? Because that is brilliant. <laughs> is that a thing? No, I've just conjured that up. I've always had a, I've had an issue with the term Whovian for a Doctor Who fan. Right. I think it's one of these. There's, I mean, this is this is a whole other episode. But I've got issues with the way that Doctor Who fandom has been kind of San Diego Comic Conned. And um, no offense <laughs> to our American listeners, but like the the kind of the Trek or Star Wars template for fandom doesn't really work on Doctor Who because there's no sense of kind of autorial um, continuity or control or a grand design. It's it's literally just people doing weird things at different times throughout a convoluted and irreconcilable children's TV show's history. Um, but it's, that's, that's obviously a side point. So they're Whovians. When I'm being mischievous on Twitter, I prefer to call them Hoovers, um, and sometimes Little Henry Hoovers, but that mainly because it annoys people. And um, there is always one guy that will reply, actually, they're called Hoovians. Much in the same way as if you tweet something about Stargate, there'll always be someone that replies with that same Indeed gif. <laughs> but I'm, I'm calling out our entire audience now. So I should probably, I should probably get well, off this train. <laughs> well, I don't know how to move on from that, so I'll just move on from that. Um, <laughs> another big story this last couple of weeks has been uh, almost this saga of Scarlett Johansson suing Disney. Um, over a, a breach of contract, um, I suppose you have to get an alleged breach of contract at this point in time. I, I don't know how the legalities of that work, but uh, don't sue me. It's a podcast. Of it you, have please. to be legal. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the the problem here, kind of in a nutshell, is that um, part of Scarlett Johansson's contract uh, included certain bonuses that would trigger 
when certain box office milestones would be hit. And because of the COVID pandemic, um, delaying the release and eventually leading to what in the end was a day and date release on Disney Plus and in theaters. So I think it was like a $20 fee you'd have to pay on Disney Plus, or you can just go and see it in the cinema at the same time. Um, it meant that obviously the film then didn't make as much money at the box office as it probably would have in, you know, safer times. Um, it still ended up breaking the sort of COVID record with uh, an $80 million domestic debut, which is very good going. Um, but it ultimately resulted in a roughly $50 million loss in bonuses for Scarlett Johansson. So that's big money that <laughs> that, that we're talking about here. Um, Disney kind of came out of a statement saying that, you know, Scarlett was being uh, kind of insensitive to the pandemic and that she already earned like $20 million. So it's kind of this, it's, it's a mess now. It's like a publicity like mess at the moment. Um, I think with these things, people always always forget with these kind of legal cases, breach of contract and things like that. It's not about who is morally right. So it's easy to sit on Twitter, look at this and go, yes, yeah, Scarlett, there's a pandemic on. Like, why didn't you neck it? She had a contract, the contract was breached. That's a fact. It's also a fact there's a pandemic on and that made things difficult. Two facts can be in existence at the same time. Um, so, yeah, it, it is an awkward, awkward scenario. And, you know, fair play to her for, for standing up for what she felt she was entitled to. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's, there's rumours as well, again, stating rumours that um, Feige is upset about the whole situation, um, possibly siding more with Scarlett, um, that Bob Iger is just mortified, is I think the quote that the rap used when reporting this, at uh, the whole situation, and there's been sort of corporate rifts between Bob Iger and Bob Chapek. For those who don't know, um, Bob Iger is the former CEO of Disney who stepped down just before the pandemic, but kind of stayed in to help smooth things over um because obviously this crazy thing happened you guys might have noticed this last 18 months or so but um and then bob shapek uh is kind of uh took over and i guess there's been some disagreements there um i possibly would have handled things difficult uh, differently but we won't really know now so is it weird crazy. That i always visualize bob Iger as being mike from monsters inc Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what answer I was expecting now. I mean, admittedly, the the odds of no, no, I do too are quite slim. I think it's the eye. <laughs> I feel like he's hiding in plain sight. Iger, because he's just got one giant eye. Little green fellow, one giant eye. Bob Iger. Um, Sorry, I, I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm not sure how this is all going to land. I guess we'll have to. Stay tuned and um, yeah, see how see which way it goes. But I think it sets an interesting precedent anyway. Well, it will set an interesting precedent because I think HBO Max, Disney Plus, they're starting to experiment with this kind of day and date uh, streaming and cinema release. So I think it really affects a lot of things. So a lot of um, people in the industry will have bonuses associated with box office. Um, a lot won't though, so a lot will actually end up making more money from digital profits um, rather than 
box office. So a lot of screenwriters won't make anything off of the box office, mm-hmm. whereas they will in residuals from digital stuff. So there's, mm-hmm. I'm sure all of the guilds in Hollywood are just scrambling right now to put cases together. And I think this having the most um, PR is like I said, going to set the precedent for yeah, a, a lot, lot of things of to people come. People are probably going to be watching this from a, a legal perspective and from a business perspective because COVID has really shown us that the, the way in which the, um, the movie industry operates really needs some sort of revolution. Um, not because it's killed cinema single-handedly, but it has accelerated a process that was already already taking place of people not actually wanting to to brave the sticky carpets of their lo- local uh, local cinema complex. I mean, there's, I'm sure there's a lot going on behind the scenes there that we're not privy to because I, I don't know if you can really believe this, listeners, but Scarlett Johansson hasn't confided in us as to, to, to what got us to this point. But it does feel like something her lawyers or management should have leapt on very early as soon as Disney announced its intentions. And I'm sure they probably did. And that's why we're in this state where it's kind of exploded into the public forum. Yeah, that makes me feel like these conversations have been happening for a while. And this was maybe a threat on the table that's now like come to light. But we'll see how it all plays out. I think it's fascinating. This is... um... This is right up my street. I'm much more into this than a, a historian. Sorry, I'm sorry to hear you say that. Um, but yeah, it would make a really good kind of prestige HBO series, wouldn't it? Thinking like succession style. Yeah, or one day a great in-depth companion article that kind of goes right into the details of the business and where things maybe went wrong. Um just like the Stargate Worlds article that came out oh, last week. Oh, that was, that was a graceful segue. It was like, oh God, it was like watching a space shuttle kind of discard its booster rocket. Honestly, it was, it was ballet. Uh, yeah, we were super, super lucky um, to get this out. This was published last week, I think. Um, it's written by Graham Mason who is a, um, for lack of a better word, like a, a retro gaming expert and journalist. He writes for Retro Gamer magazine, um, which I used to work with when they were owned by Imagine Publishing. Um, hi, Darren, if you're listening to this. I doubt you are. Um, you're always welcome here. Um, so, yeah, Graham tracked down one of the developers of the Stargate Worlds MMORPG. Yeah, but this was this was at that point when it was first announced. This was the great hope of, of Stargate fandom. Uh, the show had kind of ended. Um, this was a Knights of the Old Republic scale opportunity for you to, to play as your kind of favourite sort of races or archetypes and really take part in letting that kind of story unfold and really be a part of that that history and that's kind of uh, the scale of i don't know merchandising is not the right word but kind of licensed tie-ins i suppose that stargate's kind of missed out on because it hasn't had like a sexy image comics or dark horse comics line 
um, no disrespect to Dynamite Comics, a um, tiny bit of disrespect to Dynamite Comics. <laughs> so yeah, they, they, and you know, our very own Brad Wright and Robert C. Cooper involved in kind of the developing the canon and signing off on some of the story ideas. So this was, you know, very much the next best thing to a fourth Stargate series at that point. Um, so it broke a lot of hearts. Um, and Graham Mason really gets inside the the development, finds out some of the details from what we might have seen, including the furlings, which were going to be kind of depicted as this single gestalt mind type thing. Um, so that would have been like a major contribution to the canon. And as I said, that was signed off by the show's creators. So it was really, really interesting. Um a fascinating long read that you simply will not find anywhere else. So if you haven't read it, fire up the old intertab and clicky-click on over to the companion dot app. Nice. Yeah, it seems so... Like, beyond just being like a licensed game, like, uh, it was so interesting to read about how they were like pushing the boundaries of MMORPGs of that time as well um so it would have just been like a really interesting game on its own merit without you know obviously all the exciting stargate stuff attached to it but yeah the the uh the canon stuff was definitely the most exciting and interesting because that is super super rare i mean it's the sort of thing that's only starting to come about now in the star wars you know sort of disney umbrella canon being thought about in this new way of everything kind of has to tie together and there's a story group and stuff. So the fact that they were looking at doing that with Stargate back in the day is, is really, really, really cool. Yeah. And I suppose there are elements of that that are still around now. And I suppose this is kind of a plea to our listeners, you know, just because it's not happening on TV doesn't mean it's not happening. Like in my opinion, as soon as a show like Stargate or, you know, Doctor Who or Farscape or whatever else is broadcast, you start to own it because how you interpret it and what you take away from it gives you a share in that just as potent and valuable as the creators. And we've got Wyvern Gaming right now doing Stargate SG-1 um, RPG. They're having a lot of fun kind of adding to that world. And there's a new strategy game coming out, I believe, Stargate Timekeepers. Um, I'm not sure whether that's due, but again, that's kind of expanding this this world that we know and love. And for a number of years, all we've really been able to do is kind of watch the our favourite episodes over and over again. The good job is about six hundred thousand of them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so the main thing we really was really looking forward to talking about today is uh, the Suicide Squad, which came out last week for us. Yeah, that, oof, I've never been so delighted. It's only my second trip um, to the cinema since COVID. Uh, obviously, my first time was for Black Widow. Sorry, Scarja. Um, but yeah, Suicide Squad was what I was really, really excited about. And that absolutely has to be seen on, on a cinema. It's what the cinema's made for. Like every single yeah. second of that, I, 
I was just having the best time. It felt like it was being made for me, like seeing James Gunn's kind of outsider voice, all of that kind of schlock, B-movie, horror and action, superhero kind of stuff all come together in this one place. It was like, it was effectively his showreel. It was every bit of his, his trauma past was in there, super was in there, Guardians, yeah. like, and more. Fantastic film. Yeah, that, that, there's there's rarely a more perfect fit for a filmmaker and a franchise, but, you know, Gunn kind of once again proved that his, well, his knack for bringing the sort of overlooked and underappreciated characters to the forefront. And it was just so like, just beautiful in an ugly way. <laughs> you know, it was just so gross, but like you couldn't help, but like you couldn't turn away. And it was just some gorgeous visuals and yeah. just a great visual identity to it. Um, loved it felt like a comic book come to life which i know is such an overused term but it it really felt you know and that's the important thing for me and that was for me the real kind of genius of guardians of galaxy and where that really made a difference is that in my opinion as like a long-term kind of comic book fan comic book movies up until that point had been generally they'd come from a position of being ashamed of being based on comic books. The proposition had always been, "Oh, how do we make Iron Man work in our world? How do we make Iron Man believable? How do we make Superman believable?" And Guardians of the Galaxy was almost a case of, "Well, how do we make this entire world something you want to believe in, something you can believe in?" Which is different from believable in a way, because it wasn't about dragging yeah. that world down. Um, this is a bit of a tangent, but I think the the use of physical kind of in camera effects in Suicide Squad was a massive part of kind of what made that work, because you need the you know current sort of squirting from rubber arms and you know, cases and cases and cases of rounds being fired and like a massive jungle set in Panama. You need to feel that dirt beneath your fingers to invest in the giant mind control alien starfish. (laughs) Like you can have both. (laughs) Like not everything has to be the dark knight. There's a lot of stuff I really like in Zack Snyder's Watchmen. Um, but one of the things I was really forward to in the film alien starfish. was a giant squid monster <laughs> yeah, at the yeah. end, and I was really looking forward to that. And I kind of I get why they changed it, and you know what they did differently. And it's like you say that they're they're trying to make the comic book world fit into the cinematic world, whereas now I, with full confidence, can say that if James Gunn adapted Watchmen, <laughs> there'd be a giant squid monster at the end, and it would be amazing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, really interesting as well that. Peacemaker was um, the character that the comedian was inspired by. So it was really cool to see Peacemaker on the big screen. And he stole the show for me. I mean, as, as much as I loved every single character in their own different way, Peacemaker was brilliant. And I really can't wait for the TV show. Oh, absolutely. It's another kind of rarity. I mean, it's not like actively hate some characters in some other films or anything like that. I mean, okay, like Marvel movies generally quite well made right it's fine yeah <laughs> yeah i don't i don't resent time spent with characters i'm that aren't my favorites 
but you do get excited when your favourites pop back on screen. But watching the Suicide Squad, I didn't care who I was looking at because uh, they were gonna, they were giving me something that tickled that part of my brain that generates the happy atoms, and I was so just so gleeful the whole time. I was just grinning and cackling like a, a I don't know, I don't know what cackles. Witches, like a random witch. <laughs> We're going to get letters from Wiccans now, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think James Gunn has got such a gift for blending irrelevance and irreverence. And the Suicide Squad was like a perfect portrait of punk. Like, And it just gave a much needed splash of colour to truly a bland cinematic universe. So I hope we continue to get to see him play in that sandbox, obviously starting with the TV show that comes out in January. I think it's just an eight episode miniseries that he had a crazy idea for and pitched during lockdown and got given the green light. And I think they might have wrapped shooting now and they're just on post-production. So it's kind of this crazy thing that's all come together, but um, super, super excited for that. Yeah, you're right. It was a total breath of fresh air. And I, I think at some point over the last decade or half decade, like studios have sort of forgotten why they make films or what it is that people like about films. Like I don't go to watch a film as, as some sort of something I have to endure in order to get the payoff. Like I, I don't go, oh, I need to see these next three Marvel movies. Otherwise the one that will actually be good won't make any sense uh, it has to be good in itself just be a great story show me amazing characters like make me laugh make me cry make me vomit when i see a giant starfish with tiny starfish fluttering out of its rippling whatever starfish called the bum moles i thought obviously peacemaker was bang on with that and they were technically starfish <laughs> flapping out of its little arm bum moles armpit bum moles <laughs> As uh, as biologists call them, marine biologists, the old armpit bumhole, or in Latin, armpitus bumholus. Jesus, that <laughs> did not stop, did it? No, <laughs> just, just just really hoping, hoping that kind of really forcing a silence would bring that to a close, but it did not. I haven't had an energy drink today. That's the amazing thing about this episode. This is a failed experiment. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like this this talk about colour and light and hashtag vibes I think brings us inevitably to talking about David Ayer's Suicide Squad and I, I put this in a heavy heart because I'm, I'm worried it might mark the end of our relationship oh yeah I know unless it's the thing we never talk about the other woman in well, a relationship is is David Ayer's Suicide Squad. <laughs> so, what, what, why is that? What are your thoughts on the, the matter? Oh, it already feels like we're about to have a fight in a pub, doesn't it? So, like, well, why? What do you think, James? I'm just interested, just asking. Fine, isn't it? <laughs> well, I, I think we, we, we both fundamentally agree that Suicide Squad, the, the first film, was not a good film. That's uncontroversial. One of the worst films I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Honestly, I, it was just so. It's not a film that I and joyless and unfunny that I I just 
honestly had a good long hard look in the mirror when I got home and asked myself if this is the world I want to live in. Um, but where we where we part ways is obviously David Ayer had a terrible time making it, or at least a terrible time finishing it when Warner Brothers um, basically commandoed into his into his edit suite and it all went a bit tits up for him. Um, I think the story at the time is that there were reshoots to quote-unquote add jokes and also felt to add like sassy, upbeat music because that was when the, the trailer with uh, Ballroom Blitz on it came out. And that song I always feel like is is a sort of 60, 70-year-old movie executive's idea of like a, a sassy, upbeat song for a film trailer, which to me was an early warning sign that actually this was going to be a big, steaming turd of compromise. Um, and all of that, of course, felt like it was a panicky reaction to Deadpool. Um, so I think Deadpool had just come out by that point, or was it maybe a panicky reaction to Guardians? Two years prior, I think. Yeah. Was it 20... So it was a panicky reaction. No, I think, I think 2015 Deadpool, was it? Yeah. And then Suicide was 2016. Let me start that sentence for reasons. Actually, well, maybe it was 2016, 2017. Deadpool 2016. And what year Suicide was... Squad 2016, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that, that timeline fits because it's a very panicky reaction. And it was done very quickly and badly. By um, obviously adding a few gags and a sort of spunky soundtrack didn't magically make what was quite a dour film fun and arguably made it worse. Now, I think where we part ways, Tommy, is that I don't believe the ceiling on how good David Ayer's Suicide Squad could have been is that much higher than what we saw on screen, whereas I think you you are maybe more sympathetic to um, the people that I'll now refer to as Ayer Truthers. I I am. I, I mean, I think the fact that my biggest problem with the film um, is that it's an absolute mess. It doesn't link together nicely. There's no sort of pace to it it feels like 12 music videos stitched together with some um dialogue in between to get to the next you know music segment and the exposition is just delivered poorly it's it's a it's a mess it's an absolute mess but what what happened was that warner brothers saw the first cut and thought it was too kind of somber and were really worried about it. And I think Batman v Superman had just um, not met their expectations. Um, is how I'll word that. And they were just super worried about this kind of investment into the DCEU as a whole. But the trailer, that um, Trailer Park, which is a, a company that edit trailers, um, it's not done by the same companies, not done by the same editors, so Trailer Park released this trailer and it was massively popular. Everyone loved it. You know, the graphics, the music, the style, everyone was all about it. So Warner Brothers reportedly hired Trailer Park to edit the whole film, which to my knowledge is completely unheard of. And honestly, you can tell that there's no 
rhythm to it. There's no pace to it that works. And it's, I think that is the biggest problem with the film. I can totally see how the power of a good edit could definitely fix things there. Does it need a couple of reshoots? Maybe. Um, I, I've not seen the Snyder cut yet, but I know they did a lot of reshoots for that. Obviously the demand for that was a lot higher. Um, I mean, it can't be worse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can, at least we can agree it can't be worse. I mean, I, I think it's not because David Ayer isn't a great director. He is. I know I keep bringing up yeah. Sabotage in relation to, to Suicide Squad. Um, and Sabotage is a bit of a, a, a gaping goatsy in his resume. But he is good. We know it can be good. Um, yeah, Fury he's, was, he's what, mastered, two years before this? Yeah, he, I mean, he's mastered the kind of anti-heroes in a vehicle subgenre. So um, if his script had been entirely based around Harley Quinn and Deadshot in a submarine or something, it would be five stars and get an Oscar. But <laughs> it wasn't. I, I think the the constraints he was operating under were obviously much tighter than James Gunn. I mean, any constraints are tighter than the ones James Gunn was operating under because he came along at a point when Warner Brothers were very much pleased my um, my shared universe. It's very sick. <laughs> Please. And uh, he's just allowed to do whatever he wants. And I think David Ayer was pointed in the direction of making a certain type of movie. I think the constraints yeah. he was given weren't great because they're the same constraints that have been set for Batman v Superman and everything else in that kind of dour and joyless kind of Wagnerian dirge um, that had been the DCEU to that point. So that's why I think the ceiling on how good this can be is very, very low because it's it's a bunch of kind of edgelord kind of characters in a sort of edgy, quote-unquote, capital G, gritty universe aimed entirely at teenage boys. Um, and I, you know, he can still make a good movie in the sense that he can make a, a movie that ticks all of those boxes. But it won't be a movie that I'd enjoy watching particularly. Um, and you also cannot take that movie and then try and turn it into Deadpool or Guardians of the Galaxy in four months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad we finally had it out. There's no, no tears, no punches thrown. Um, yeah. And I won. My, my attempt to manufacture <laughs> some, some drama and some controversy for the ratings um, has failed. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we'll have to go back to catchphrases. That's your beans. <laughs> well, um, I know we'd both love to know what you think. Uh, so please send through any of your thoughts and any questions that you have about the companion um, or anything else for that matter to Tommy at the companion app. And that is our episode. Yeah, that is that has been an episode. You've had your beans. <laughs> been briefed <laughs> see i can have catchphrases yeah i'm still jimmy from the block <laughs> <laughs>